If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 36. Genesis 36 will be in a, a few verses there in chapter 36. And then we will get to chapter 37. Uh, we're transitioning from the life of Jacob into uh, the life of his son Josh, uh, Joshua, Joseph. <laughs> Joshua is not his son. Um, Joseph is his son. If I mix up Jacob and Joseph, um, you'll forgive me. I'm going to do that inevitably. Hopefully I don't say Joshua again, though. Um, but we're entering into this story of Joseph that we all know very well. Um, and uh, we'll be in this for a number of weeks as we consider what God is doing in the life of Joseph and how it uh, applies to each of us. I was thinking this this week about the story and about our lives and the, the way that they intersect with so many different events in this world and with one another. And just the fact that our story, our, the life that we live in, <clears throat> your life story doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. Uh, in other words, as we live each day, the events of our lives are surrounded and, and influenced by other events in the world at large and even within our immediate communities. Um, and not only that, but we are influencing those things as well. We exist in this huge world and we can often get so caught up in our own lives that we forget the fact that we live within a larger world. We exist within our families, we exist within our communities, but also within our city, within our country, within our world. And there's all these storylines that are weaving together in different ways. We're a part of something so much bigger than just us, even though often all we think about is ourselves. And this morning, as we think about the, the story of Joseph, we're stepping into the story of a man's life that is, is heartbreaking, but also very heroic at times. It's a story that's filled with pain, but it's, it's also filled with faith, and it's filled with the faithfulness of God to Joseph. But I think what makes Joseph's story so amazing is how it, how it fits into God's greater story. I think Joseph's story is amazing, and it may have lasted through the years, but I think the reason that it has lasted and, and had such a deep impact is not just because it's amazing in and of itself, but because of its place in God's greater story and what God is accomplishing in, in just this section of time. Just think about the fact that we have the story of Joseph. What all was happening in these years, 15, 20 years, that Joseph is going through everything that he's going through? Amazing things happening all throughout the ancient world, and yet God has decided that the story of Joseph is the one that we need. That's what's important for us as he's telling his greater story. It's a family story in one sense. We begin to learn more about Jacob's family and his sons, but it's also a family story because it's set within a larger family. Uh, the, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. And not only are, are we concerned about, about these three men, from the past and how Joseph's story fits into that, but it also pushes in into the future and into the children of Israel, those generations that would come after Joseph. The Joseph narrative answers some big questions for the Israelites. One most importantly is, how did we end up in Egypt in the first place? Why did we leave the promised land? And Joseph is the answer to that. But also in answering that, how did God preserve our people when the threat of famine came? How, how did God orchestrate events in such a way that he kept us as a people. There are larger questions within the story of Joseph that, are we, that are, we try to answer. Things like, where is God in the midst of tragedy and suffering? All the terrible things that happened to Joseph. There's a, are, are there answers to questions like that? And if God is present, 
How is he using suffering and pain to accomplish his purposes? Just a preview, the, the way that the, the Joseph narrative is pushing is it's pushing towards that conclusion where Joseph says, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And in many ways, the whole narrative is just building to that one big final point. God used all of this for good, for my good, for your good, and for the good of all peoples. Because it's, again, this larger story, not just of the patriarchs, not just of the people of Israel, not just of humanity, but it's it's the story of God's plan of redemption that is working out in Joseph's life. The story of Joseph, like all the stories of the patriarchs, is the story of God's faithfulness to his word and his sovereign plan to bring blessing to his people and to the whole world. So as Genesis is unfolding, we hear God continually reminding his people, there's this promise, there's a promise coming, there's a seed. And then all these threats come in to this covenant. And they often stem from the lack of faith of his people, but they also stem from other things like like famine in, in this section. And it's about how God overcomes all of these obstacles to keep his promise, to be faithful, to bring this seed, to bring salvation to his people, to provide a Messiah, to bring the Savior of the world into existence in the person of Jesus Christ. So the story of Joseph, it's, it's very personal. It takes us, at times we'll be sitting with a solitary man in a jail cell, abandoned and forgotten by everyone. But it's also, it's a corporate story. It tells the, the tale of Abraham's descendants. It tells about how, how God was working with them. It's this universal story that applies to everyone because it seeks to answer some of the deepest questions of our lives. Why do we go through suffering? What is God doing in the midst of those things? And above all, it's, it's in the midst of God's great story, showing us the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. And I think as we look at this, we can say with confidence that just as Joseph has a place in all these different areas, in his personal story, in the story of his family, in the story of, of God's people, in the story of God's greater purposes in the world, as all these are unfolding around him, so too we are a part of God's work in the world. We are part of all of these bigger stories than just ourselves. Joseph is amazingly unique, and he's also completely ordinary, just like us. As we begin to walk through this story, I think this is what God would have us to, to think about. I think this is the message that God would have us take just as we sort of dip our toes into the waters of, of Joseph's story. It's this, when we understand our place in God's plans, we can live at peace. When we understand our place in God's plans, we can live at peace. Peace with others, peace with God even peace within ourselves about where we are at in God's greater story. When we understand our place in God's plan, where do we fit in his broader story? What are we doing? When we understand that, peace floods into our hearts and our minds and into our relationships. I think we all often wonder about this, don't we? What's our place in the story of the world? How do I fit into everything that's happening, into my family and into... Um, my community, into my nation, into my world, and even into God's story. What is my role? What, what's God using me for? What's my purpose, as it were, in this world? I've had an 80s song running through my head all week long, an 80s Christian song by, I think it's Michael W. Smith. 
He says he's looking for, everyone's looking for their place in this world. Do you guys, anyone remember that song? Kind of that whiny voice. I love Michael W. Smith, but, you know, I can just hear him in my head. Uh, he's got a unique voice. What's my place in this world? And as we consider Joseph's story, I think we'll, we'll slowly see that as well. The context is, is chapter 36. And chapter 36, if you just look, begins with a familiar phrase, these are the generations of... Just by way of review, remember that the book, this is a key phrase in the book of Genesis. And there's, and it occurs 12 times, and it's, the book is broken up into these 12 headings that are spaced throughout the book. The first is unique, it's in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's how the world begins. It shows that, how the heavens and the earth began. The second is in 2-4, it says, these are the generations of, or this is the account of, the heavens and the earth. And, and so it, it, what follows is, is that account of the heavens and the earth. And 5.1 talks about the generations of Adam, and what follows is Adam's story. And in 6.9, it begins with the account of the generations of Noah. And 11.10 talks about the generations of Noah's son, Shem. The story of Abraham is in 11.27 with the statement, these are the generations of Terah, who is Abraham's father. And that continues from 11.27 to 25.11, where then Abraham dies. And then in 25.12, there's a brief summary of the generations of Ishmael. And then we move on to the generations of Isaac in 25.19, which we have just concluded, the generations of Isaac. Remember that most people hearing this for the first time would have heard it orally. They would not have had it written down. And so when they hear that phrase, these are the generations of, they see, okay, we're moving on to something different. It's a different part of the, of the narrative. And so here we have in 36.1, these are the generations of Esau. It occurs again, 36.9, these are the generations of Esau. And then the real ch- switch happens in 37.2, these are the generations of Jacob. These are the signs that the narrative is moving on to, to something different. Now, let's just read 36, uh, 1 through 9. We won't read the, through the whole chapter. I invite you to do that. Um, it's mostly genealogy, a lot of names. Um, but let's get a flavor for what's going on in 36. So let me start in verse 1 of chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Ada bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And what follows then is the genealogy of Esau's family as well as the description of where they lived. It's similar to what the author does with Ishmael. He sort of explains Ishmael's genealogy and then moves on to Isaac because that's where the flow of the narrative is going. But he's tying up loose ends here. But I think there's two things just to take from chapter 36, and we'll say these briefly. The, the first is that God is faithful to his promises. I th- God is faithful to his promises. I think that's partly why this has to be here. 
Without it here, we don't know what happens to Esau. But there were things that were told to Esau. And, and, and the, the narrative in, in chapter 36 is saying those things all came true. Everything that God said would happen to Esau, they happened. So there's the specific promise uh, that's given through Isaac, Genesis 27, 39, and 40. This is after Jacob had stolen the blessing. Isaac says to Esau, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And this happens. So he, he breaks away from his brother, um, he lives by the fat of the land. He is blessed in a unique way, but he does not live in the land of Canaan. He lives away from his brother. And so this prophecy comes through. There's a larger promise, though, given to Abraham. Genesis 17:6 says, God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. What's unique about Esau's genealogy, if you read on, if you look in 36.40, it says these are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. These are leaders among these different clans. And they are from Abraham. God is making many nations from the seed of Abraham. And he's fulfilling that even through Esau. God is faithful to his promises. The second thing I think we should note from this is not everyone is part of the promise. Not everyone is part of the promise. Esau's a bit of a mystery, though, isn't he? I mean, he's seen as this profane man who despises God's blessing. But at the same time, he's the most forgiving, magnanimous, gracious guy at certain points. I don't know what the... the the whole story of Esau's life is what happened in those later years when he forgives his brothers so clearly. What's, what's God doing in Esau? I, it would seem, though, that he's outside of the covenant promises. If nothing else, we know that in large part because of the fact that God communicated to Rebekah even before Jacob and Esau are born. You remember that? He said that the, the, the line of blessing will go through Jacob and not through Esau. We know it because Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. And we know it because here there's this contrast between Esau, who lives in Edom, outside of the land of Canaan, while Jacob, in verse 37.1, it says that he lived in the land of his father's sojournings, <clears throat> in the land of Canaan. So he's in the land of promise, and Esau is not. Not only that, but did you notice how, when it gives the list of Esau's wives, who are they? They're Hittites, they're Hivites, they're Canaanites, they're people of the land. He has not chosen to be a part of the promise as as Jacob had. Uh, the the New Testament's clearest statement on Esau is this from Hebrews twelve fifteen through seventeen. It says, "Gives a warning: See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent." So he sought it with tears. What a statement on your life, on Esau's life. I think Esau is a warning to us. Esau is a warning that we can, we can become so wrapped up in our own appetites and our lusts that we fail to be concerned about what matters most. Even that we can be pretty nice guys, pretty nice gals, and miss the promise. 
We, we fail to consider our place in God's plan or consider that our lives should be lived for his glory. They should be lived in service to others for the furtherance of the gospel. Instead, we just sort of go from meal to meal, immorality to immorality. And when the time comes to repent, we've wasted our lives and we've missed God's greater purpose. I think that's what happens to Esau. He gets to the end and he says, oh, I was so consumed with everything else that I missed what was most important. And when he wants to finally get it, it's as if it's too late. It's a reminder to everyone, to us, that life is more than food and drink and sex and money and entertainment. Let Esau, let Esau dwelling away from the land, carry nothing for the things of God. Let him remind us to seek God's kingdom first, to seek the promise of God in Christ. That's the most important thing, not all this other stuff. So Esau... He reminds us that God keeps his promises, but also that not everyone is a part of the promise. And having sort of dealt with Esau now and wrapped that up, the narrative moves on to the main concern, which is the tracing of the promised seed through the generations of Jacob. You notice he introduces Jacob and then he moves right into the story of Joseph. So let's, let's look at 37 and I'm going to read 1 through 11 and that's where we'll... Uh, be for the rest of the morning. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So we're introduced to the generations of Jacob, and immediately Joseph is brought to the forefront. We learn he's a 17-year-old boy, teenager. He's the youngest of 12 brothers, second only to Benjamin, who is his younger brother. Uh, he's the youngest. We're told that he would help with pasturing the flocks, and uh, surely these flocks had grown. They've been in this, this area about 10 years. They've reestablished themselves, resumed their role as nomadic sheep herders. And Joseph takes center stage, and, and we are again confronted, not su surprisingly, with a conflict between brothers that initially arises because of the favoritism of their parents. Doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds just like the story of Jacob and Esau, a rivalry between brothers because of the favoritism of their parents. And you want to say, what are you thinking, Jacob? <laughs> Didn't you go through this? Did you not learn the lesson 
of all the pain that this caused you. He falls into the same trap. I think we're reminded that the best of men are men at best, as I've heard Alistair Begg say often. And we begin to see also, I think, Jacob's love for Rachel. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a theme throughout how much Jacob loved Rachel. And I think now that Rachel is gone, all of his affection, all of his love for Rachel has transferred to Joseph and then later to Benjamin. I, I just take that as a reminder that our actions, the, the, the things that are deep down, they're rooted deep in us. This, this action of Jacob is not an afterthought. It comes out of this deep love for his wife who is now gone and it just transfers over to Joseph. That doesn't justify his sin or his, his failure, but I think it gives us some compassion for him. You know, Think about what he went through and, and just what's going on in him. And, and maybe that's a lesson for us too, to realize as people sin, as people do foolish things, make the same mistakes over and over again. We just kind of look back and say, what's, there might be something deeper going on. It doesn't justify it, but it maybe gives us a little bit of compassion for what's really happening below the surface here. The more Jacob loves Joseph, the more Joseph's brothers hate him. That's the theme, actually. If you want to pick a key word for those 11 verses, you'd say hate. It recurs over and over again. One reason that they hate him is, the first reason is the bad report. So verse 2 it says that he's out there with uh, specifically with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and Joseph brought a bad report to them of their father. We don't know exactly what they did, but they had acted poorly in some way. And Joseph comes and says, here's what my brothers did, because that's what little brothers do, right? They tell on their older brothers. They tell dad how the older siblings are disobeying. And, and there's no commentary on this, whether Joseph approached them first or then went to his his dad um, what we do know is that it just makes the brothers mad, which makes sense, right? I mean, and, and actually, though, what's interesting is it makes the brothers mad, but it makes Jacob love Joseph even more. And flowing from that, we find the second cause of hatred. So the first is this report. The second reason they hate him is because of the robe. So Joseph comes and reports this, and it seems in part because of that, his father gives him a robe of many colors, Possibly, maybe not many colors, maybe a long-sleeved robe. Um, the, the idea is that it's it's a, a, a communicates some kind of authority. He's not a, a slave, or maybe the special favor of his father. Something going on, but whatever it's meant to communicate. What it communicates to their brothers is that their father loves Joseph more, and therefore they hate him more. Interesting. They should have been upset with their dad, I think, but their hatred goes towards. Joseph, they hate him. They can't speak civilly to him, it says. The dinner table is just, it's either awkward silence where no one knows how to interact, or it's angry yelling. They don't know how to interact anymore. They hate him so much. Just again, a note for those of us that are parents, actions speak louder than words. We may not go as far as to give our children a special coat, (laughs) Uh, but we can show favoritism. And the other children know it. Favoritism causes issues. And it doesn't just create problems between us and the child. It creates problems more between the, the brothers and the sisters. They're the ones that see it. And they don't get mad at the parents. Who do they get mad at? They get mad at the kid. Be careful. We need to be like our father, our heavenly father, who loves all his children equally and extravagantly. 
So the bad report and the robe, these things all caused Joseph's brothers to hate him more. But it's the final straw is the dreams. All these dreams. And they put these brothers over the edge, which we will see next week. There's two dream reports, 5 through 8 and 9 through 11. The first is of sheaves in a field. Jacob comes down for breakfast one morning. He interrupts the silence. And he says, hey, guys, you'll never believe the dream that I just had. You know, this is going to go over great. He tells his brothers how he's in the field and his sheaf of grain stands up. And then all of their sheaves of grain come and bow down before him. And the implication is clear. The brothers say, are you going to reign over us? You're going to rule over us, Joseph? And not surprisingly, the text tells us they hated him even more. Not just because of the bad report or the favoritism, but because of the, the but now because of his dreams and his words. Joseph is young and he doesn't understand that he should have stopped at that dream. And so he tells them another dream. And it's similar, simpler. The sun, the moon, and the stars come and bow before him. And he tells this, and Jacob catches the drift this time, and he rebukes Joseph, maybe for the first time in his life, and says, Will I and your mother and your brothers really come down and, and come and bow down before you? And the second dream brings about jealousy. Interesting, though, that his father mulls over these things. His father thinks a little bit about them. Take a step back, maybe. Is Joseph right in the way that he interacts with his brothers? Joseph, for most of the narrative, is, is very commendable in everything that he does. But I think here is where we see Joseph's weakness. We see his pride. We see his arrogance. We see his youthfulness. It begins, I think, with the, giving this bad report to his father. I, I don't think he did approach his brothers first. I, I think that would be in there, but he doesn't. He, he just goes to his dad and says, here's what your sons are doing, rather than approaching them. And then he tells them these dreams, which he had to know would incite their anger. And if he didn't know the first time, he would know the second time. They are, there's already stress in the relationship. And then he's going to tell them this dream? Why? What's his motivation? I think there's got to be some, some pride going on here. We don't know the full story, but what's interesting too, though, is, is that... I, well, what's interesting for us who do know the full story is that Joseph, do Joseph's dreams come true? They do come true. His, his brothers do come and bow down before him. And not just figuratively, they literally come and bow down to him multiple times. So the dreams are true, whether they like it or not. But knowing that, we still kind of feel for these brothers, don't we? I mean, no one wants this. No one wants to be tattled on. No one wants to be less loved by their father. No one wants to be told by others that they're going, especially your younger brother, that, that they're going to come and bow down to you. And, and the pride and the youthful arrogance on Joseph's part is there. But the brothers are not right in their anger and their response either. If this is truly God's plan for their brother, could they humbly accept it? That this is what God's going to do? Accept Joseph's place in God's plans and their place in God's plan? What's ironic is they're angry that they're going to have to come and bow before Joseph. But it, it's Joseph is exalted. Why? So that he can save them. His exaltation and their, the fact that they have to come and bow down to him is ultimately the reason that they don't starve to death. How interesting. All these things going on. And I, I think, again, getting back to where I think 
we want to push this morning is that when we understand our place in God's plans, then we will have peace. And I think we have three different groups that are struggling with their place in God's plan. Jacob, the brothers, and Joseph. What is my place and how should I respond to what God has called me to do in my life, to the special, what, where he has me and what he has me to do? And so I want to think about it with, with some questions, and I put them on the bottom of the, the notes there. Um, so just so you can, because some of them are a little bit long, and so you can see them there. But let's ask these questions and, and interact with the text a little bit, but then also think about them in our own lives. So when we think about our place in God's plan, and I think one of the questions we ask is, am I in the line of blessing through Christ? Am I in the line of blessing through Christ? That's part of, that's God's great plan, isn't it? And Esau is not. That's, that's where I want to draw from Esau is Esau's not even in this plan because of his pride and because of, of his, his profane nature and his, just the, the lust that sort of draw him away. He's not even a part of this. So God's great plan for the world is to redeem it through Christ. And if we are here, then we, need to be a part of that greater plan. That's the most important part that we can be, that we can play. That we would submit to God's way of salvation through Christ and know true peace through Him. That we would admit our sins and we would come to Christ and find salvation and be in that line of blessing and be part of God's great purpose for the world by being a part of that. The second question as we think about this is, am I content to trust God's sovereign plan for my life? Am I, tr- am I content to trust God's sovereign plan for my life? Jacob seems to be struggling with passing things on. Am I really going to come bow down to you, Joseph? Shouldn't everyone come and bow down to me because I'm older and I'm the patriarch? And it seems as if the, the plan is moving on. It's moving on um, from Jacob. But he's not willing to accept that, as it were. The brothers, they don't want to accept their place of coming and bowing down to Joseph, this this subservient role to their brother. And and Joseph is kind of getting it, but what is understanding God's plan, but maybe with this hint of pride, and we'll get to that. But I think what it tells me is whether God chooses to use me in some mighty way beyond whatever I could imagine, or if I'm just called to be faithful in the simple things of life, I want to be content with where he's placed me in that larger plan. Do we see faithfulness in, in small things as honoring him, as, as being a part of God's greater purpose in this world? Is it enough for you to just to be a faithful employee, to, to reflect Christ to your coworkers? Is it enough each day to just be a faithful parent and to try to lead your children to, to love God and to love others? Is, is it enough? Whatever realm God has called you to, maybe insignificant, maybe small, is it enough to just do the dishes to the glory of God? It, whatever it is that's part of this greater purpose that is influencing many things, am I content with the plan that God has for me in, in the big things, but also maybe just in the daily activities of life? Am I Will I rest in that? Will I trust that he's doing something even beyond me, something great? Out of that, then, am I jealous and angry, or am I open and thankful? So, as I think about my own life, am I content with what God's doing in me at this moment? 
And as I look at the lives of others, am I jealous and am I angry at what God's doing through them? Or am I open and and thankful to what's going on? The brothers obviously see Joseph and say, no way. We do not like this. Jacob, I think, is pondering. He's sort of in between there. He's open. Maybe something's going to happen. Maybe this is true. Jacob's got some life experience, doesn't he? And life experience that says God often uses unlikely second-born brothers to do amazing things. So maybe he's a little bit wiser, but the brothers, again, maybe in their pride are just saying, I don't want to listen to this. When we think about that, as we look at our own lives and then we look at the lives of others, is there jealousy? Is there anger? Maybe within a family, well, this person's doing more. Uh, This person's doing greater things. Maybe in the local church or the church universal, am I jealous? Am I angry about how God is using other people for his kingdom? Or am I a person who's thankful for the way that God works for his glory through me, even in mundane, small little things? Am I willing to believe that God can use anyone? Am I willing to look at someone who's younger than me? Am I willing to look at someone who's older than me older than me, and say, maybe God is going to use them in an amazing way? Am I willing to ponder like Jacob did? Maybe this is what God's plan is. Do I have that kind of humility to do that? Do I submit to God's plan, not just for my own life, but for others what what are what's what's god's purpose for them and will i support them do i rejoice with those who rejoice or do i get jealous do i get angry the fourth one there am i prideful about god's purposes and plans for my life maybe god has called us to something like joseph something bigger something that has a larger impact Joseph's issue, I think, is that he's dealing with some pride. He's saying, check me out, everyone. Look at what God's going to do through me. And what is God going to do through him? He's going to do amazing things. After he deals with his pride, Joseph is going to be extremely humble in the process of getting to the place that he's exalted. When God chooses to use you or to use me in unique ways, do we see that as the result of of his sovereign good pleasure, of his kindness and goodness to us? Or are we tempted to think that he used us because we are something special? Do we recognize God's sovereignty and the fact that none of us are worthy to be used in amazing ways? And anything that happens is, is the gift of God's grace and it's his power working through us. I think Joseph needed to learn that in the midst of it all that God was with him and that's what made him important. So am I in the line of blessing through Christ? Am I content to trust God's sovereign plan for my life? Am I jealous and angry or open and thankful? Am I prideful about God's purposes and plans for my life? Fifth, do I see my purpose as serving others for the glory of God? Do I see my purpose as serving others for the glory of God? That's what Joseph is going to do eventually. The emphasis is so much on the exaltation, but what's Joseph going to do? He's going to serve. Joseph's exaltation would be so that he could serve others. And this is always how it works for us. If we are exalted, it is so we can serve. Let's think even about the person of Jesus Christ. We looked at it with the young adults on Friday. Right before Jesus dies in his ultimate act of humility and suffering and service, what's he do? He washes the disciples' feet. He's so exalted that he's willing, that, that he, but he sees his purpose as serving others. In the midst of our our greater picture and plan, ultimately what we come down to is we're serving others for the glory of God. 
some of these are foreshadowing a little bit. And this last one, especially, do I trust that God has a purpose for the pain in my life? Do I trust that God has a purpose for the pain in my life? Things that are coming in Joseph's life, he's going to see these as part of God's purpose for him. That the pain is necessary for Joseph to accomplish this greater purpose. That he has to go through these things. Do we see that? Are we willing to accept that it may be that we are forgotten for years? It may be that we go through physical and emotional pain. That we are abandoned by everyone so that God can use us for greater purposes. Are we willing to accept the pain in our lives as a, as a way that God is going to shape us and make us usable? I thought about a seventh one, which I'll just give you. Am I living for present or future glory? Am I living for present or future glory? And maybe that's part of Joseph's pride as he's thinking purely about this exaltation of himself and not seeing that bigger picture of why is God exalting him? It's for the good of the nation. It's for the good of all people. And that ultimately what really matters is the favor of God. As I I think about these, I I think all these guys are struggling with what's my what's my purpose, what's my my place in this plan. And I feel like hopefully these questions help us to think about ourselves and how do we fit into this greater purpose and plan. And as I was meditating through this passage and thinking about some of these things, I thought, not surprisingly, that Jesus is the perfect example of all this, isn't he? Look with me at Philippians 2, a familiar passage, but one that sort of brings this all together, hopefully, for us. Philippians 2. And I'll just read in in verse 5, talking about Jesus. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As you think about that passage, you think about the life of Jesus, and then think about these questions. You think Jesus obviously is in the line of blessing. (laughs) He is the line of blessing. He is the seed. Jesus was content in God's sovereign plan for his life. Jesus accepted all the things that came into his life, all the suffering that came into his life. He saw it as his purpose. He was so focused on what God had called him to do, and he never wavered from that. To think about pride. Am I prideful in my purposes and plans? If anyone had any opportunity to be prideful, it's Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh who has come to save the entire world. That was his purpose. And yet, this text tells us that he humbled himself in his incarnation and then in his death itself. He humbles himself. He's not prideful. He has come, why? To serve others. That, that fifth question, he saw his purpose as serving others his whole life was serving others from the moment that he came on earth and started healing people to when he washed the disciples' feet to his very death itself was done in service to others. He was obedient to God's plan even to the point of death on a cross. He embraced all the pain that came, the agony 
of being rejected by his own people, the agony of, of being in the garden, the agony of the cross itself. He saw the purpose for his pain. And he was living for future glory. And that glory that will come one day when it doesn't really matter that people were going to bow down to Joseph, but Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He understood his purpose and his place. And I think we obviously are not the Messiah. <laughs> and we're probably not even Joseph rescuing a nation. But God has a, a purpose and a plan. He's using us in unique ways, in small ways, in big ways. And if we are in the line of blessing, we are a part of God's great purpose for the world. And we can trust that God has a plan and a purpose, even in the small and the minuscule things, whatever he's called us to do, whatever workplace he's got us in, whatever family he's got us in, whatever neighborhood he has us in, whatever church he has us in, and the gifts that he's given us in this church, he has a plan for what he's going to use us for here. And we don't need to be jealous of others, but rather we need to rejoice with others. We need to be thankful for the way that God is going to use them, maybe in greater ways than us, but maybe even in smaller ways than us. But to see that that's how God works in all people in different ways. We don't need to be prideful, but to recognize that if God is going to use us, it's for his glory, not because of our own abilities. And we do it because we're serving others. That's the purpose. That was Joseph's purpose, was to serve his people, his family, his nation, and all other nations. To serve us, even, so that Christ and the seed would be preserved. And that is our role. And that he's going to use us even in pain. And in the pain, we can have hope that ultimately we're looking for future glory and for future rest. I invite you to consider the life of Joseph and to consider God's purpose for him, God's purpose even for his brothers, for his father. What is God's purpose for us? I look forward to going through the rest of Joseph's story. I think we've got a lot to learn from Joseph, but more importantly, from God's faithfulness to Joseph. And so I pray that he would continue to be our teacher. Let's take a moment of silence and, and reflect on God's word and allow his spirit to speak to our hearts. And then I will close this in prayer and we'll sing. Lord God, we thank you for your, your word to us. Thank you for preserving this true story for us. pray that whatever I've said that is true would that we know how to apply it well and how to walk with you. Would help us to see your purpose and your plan in the world, first of all, in, in Christ. pray that if there's anyone here who does not know the blessing of salvation through him, that they would know it even this morning. But Lord, help us Help us to know what your plans are for us. Maybe we are like Joseph and you will use us in amazing ways beyond what we could ever ask or think. And maybe we are Benjamin who just is at home most of the time. But being faithful, Lord, help us to see that, to be content with it, to be content with how you use others. See your purpose in all things, even in the pain of our lives. Lord, thank you that you have called us as your children into the reason that you created the world. That you made this world for your glory. And you have purpose to save the world through Christ. 
And we know that. And we are a part of this greater plan and purpose for the Lord. Help us to give our lives for that. I pray against the spirit of Esau that lives only for this world. Help us to see that we have a greater purpose than that, even in the small things of life. So, Lord, apply this to each of our hearts. Lord, we're all in different situations, and we trust you to do that. We thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.